when I used to compete, I'd compete once a year and I'd stay at that body fat uh, level for a couple of weeks, maybe for some photo shoots, but that was it. And that's where the balance comes in. You know, you have to find what is manageable for you. And me being about 15, 14% body fat is manageable for me. However, if it's required from me, I'll get down for a very short time period and then bring it back where it's comfortable. Some people are comfortable at five or six body fat, five or six percent body fat. Maybe it's because they're an ectomorph, they have a faster metabolism, and they can sustain it. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to bodybuilder, entrepreneur, and endurance athlete, Chris Gethin. Chris has competed as a lifetime natural pro bodybuilder, placing as high as second place in the natural world championships. As a personal trainer, his clients have included Bollywood celebrities, billionaires, and champion athletes. He's also the founder of Chris Gethin Gyms and the supplement brand Caged Muscle. Yeah, this guy stays pretty busy. Our chat covered a range of topics, and some of my favorite takeaways are Chris's strategies for maintaining muscle mass and strength while training for long-duration endurance events. This is something Chris has a ton of firsthand experience with, and he gives some really great actionable tips. Also, I just want to say, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast, so if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend Podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. The first question I have for you is something that's, that's been on my mind since we've been planning your appearance on this podcast. What would surprise most people about starting and running a supplement company, something where you have a lot of experience? Uh, I've had many of surprises along the way. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the one thing that uh, comes to mind is that just because you're projecting forward and increasing, you know, year after year, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay that way. You know, the, the tides change constantly. And just like, you know, if you're on a diet, some days you're going to be lethargic, you're going to be tired, and you have to be disciplined to work through that. You know, we see that in real estate. We have the ups and downs. But if you stay there consistently for the long run, then you'll always come out on top. So, you know, you, there's times where you kind of doubt yourself, you question, you ask all these questions, uh, but, you know, you follow through with that persistence and consistency and the discipline of doing things that you don't always want to do, and you'll come out on top. So when it comes to Caged Muscle, your company, how did you start that? I think a lot of people, when they hear about supplement companies, and there are so many supplement companies. I mean, at Barbend, we have seen... Uh, literally hundreds of supplement companies come up on the market in the past few years. What steps did you take to actually get that off the ground? Okay. Well, um, anybody who's been following me for a while will notice that I put out a lot of video series. And at that time I was actually creating my own formulas. So there was nothing out there that had an efficacious dose of the ingredients that I wanted and neither were they sourced from uh, natural sources or patented sources or fermented or organic. So I'd do them then myself, but I knew that wasn't efficient or logical for the consumer that was watching my video series at home. So that's when I decided, well, 
I should actually put out a product out there or a line of products that doesn't exist because that's, you know, I've always tried to merge the health sector with the fitness sector. And unfortunately, it's quite a huge, you know, an unusual disconnect between health and fitness. So by merging them both, that's when I decided, well, you know, I know people within the industry. Uh, I know a great formulator. I know an awesome CFO who have been working within the industry with myself uh, for many years. So, you know, that's when we decided, well, it would be rude not to come up with something. And that's when KM was born. Okay, so talk about that disconnect between health and fitness. You talk about the health industry and the fitness industry as two separate entities. Say more about that. Sure. You know, well, every decision that we make either heals our future or harms our future, you know, whatever we put in our mouth, you know, those even thoughts, stress. So unfortunately, you know, supplements are within the health industry, but a lot of the supplements out there, you know, do not have efficacious dosages. They have generic ingredients. Uh, They have a lot of artificial colors, flavors, and, uh, you know, it's not something that you'd want to put a lot in your body every day. I'm not going to name any names, but there's a top company out there that has the equivalent of 25 packets of Splendor in its pre-workout and 30 packets in its post-workout. So just in one day, you are over the RDA limit of, of that sucralose. So, you know, I wanted to you know, keep that in mind. And, you know, if I'm going to create something, I feel good about giving it to my family. And, you know, I, I try to look after my gut health as much as I possibly can and that of my clients. So, you know, I wanted products that aren't going to cause an inflammatory response, a cortisol response. And so, you know, I decided to you know, travel to various countries, you know, where I have my organic caffeine sourced from India, uh, have fermented ingredients and ensuring that you know a lot of the ingredients are are patented which are based on studies and research to be you know based on purity and performance but you know a a standard of health as well and uh, you know when we have instagram available to us now and all these social networks everybody wants results now that instant gratification so if a supplement comes online and says this is the best and this is the price point, and it's very cheap, the chances are they've put a lot of money into marketing, but not so much into the product. You can't have both. So there are some brands out there that are doing it very, very well. However, not enough people know about them because they invest, as I said, into the ingredients. So, so that's, a, that's a pretty good overview of some of the important dynamics in the supplement company, or sorry, in the supplement industry that, that drive the supplement industry. But my question was more focused on, you talk about the health industry or health complex as separate from the fitness industry or fitness yeah. complex. Where, what are some other examples, non having nothing to do with supplements, for example, where well, we could maybe see that distinction? Because I'm, I'm curious really what you mean by that distinction. Sure. Well, you know, if you look at the statistics of what we're dealing with today, the increase of uh, Alzheimer's and cancer. And, you know, when I say Alzheimer's, we think of people that are elderly. People in their 40s now are being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, however, these people look phenomenal. You know, I'm generalizing. You'll see someone on the front of a magazine cover. Um, You know, a good friend of mine passed away last year, but he looked fantastic. He had the six-pack abs, lean, and you would say that was fit. And he was fit, extremely fit. Was he healthy? 
Well, no, he wasn't. And a lot of people now try to diet down to have that look of that person, whether it be on Instagram or a magazine, due to this social pressure, but they may be dieting down in the wrong way, you know, and then, you know, having complications with their thyroid because they will diet hard and then binge hard. And, you know, if we have to look at the sources of the food that's uh, available to us today, you know, and it, it, unless you're eating organic, humane raised, grass fed, wild caught, then again, you're exposing yourself to genetically modified foods as covered with glyphosate or antibiotics. You know, the majority of the antibiotics in the world are not consumed via prescription. They're consumed by animals. And then we go ahead and eat those animals. So, you know, there's, just because somebody may have the perfect delts and pecs doesn't mean they're healthy. They could be fit, but there's a huge disconnect with their health, unfortunately. You talk about GMOs. I'm someone who's a bit skeptical uh, about the controversy surrounding GMOs, or at least around some of the, what I might consider overblown reactions to genetically modified foods. Are, are you someone who purposely tries to eliminate GMOs from your diet? And, and if so, on, on what basis are you doing that? Well, I don't, I'm not like eliminating them from my diet. However, if I do have the choice not to have them and I have an organic or locally grown produce, I've got my own garden patch here at home, then that's what I'm going to go for. You know, I think there were studies proven back in 2003 or 2006, and quote me there, that, uh, for instance, in an orange, you would have three times the amount of vitamin C in that organically grown orange than you would a genetically modified one. If produce is growing that much quicker, it doesn't always absorb all the nutrients available in the soil. And obviously with over-harvestation, we don't get a lot of those minerals uh, that's available to us. So, you know, if I want somebody that has an efficacious or higher dose of vitamins and minerals, then I'll obviously steer them towards the organic produce for that reason. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely like to see. I might ask you after this recording to, to you know send me that send me that research um, because there's so many mitigating factors, there's so many variables when it comes to growing food. It could be soil type, region, um, weather, uh, the existing genetic makeup of, of that particular strain of orange. I mean, every piece of produce we eat today even if it's labeled non-GMO, it's genetically modified in some way because humans over time have created cultivars of more delicious and more nutritious foods. So everything we have is is genetically modified. It's just what is the timeline and what's the method of that genetic modification sure. that, that people... Sure. Yeah, there are plenty of variables. I totally agree. Yeah, so that, that's why I'm always a little bit skeptical. You'll have to forgive me when whenever anyone says, you know, non-GMO, I'm like, okay, what's your reasoning there? Because... You know, GMO, genetically modified, doesn't necessarily mean it's something that's on its own less healthy for you or, or more dangerous. There's so many other variables that go into uh, food production, what we eat. But to transition a little bit, you're someone who um, has to value your appearance professionally. You're a longtime spokesperson for some very, very major fitness brands. Uh, if, if anyone follows you on social media, they can say you are, are very much uh, keeping fit, posting your workouts and, and really walking the walk when it comes to the exercise and nutrition content you put out there. And you talked about societal pressure to look a certain way, to look fit, to look the stereotypically, to look like you have the stereotypically fit body. 
How do you balance that societal and professional pressure? Because how you look is a part of your livelihood with staying, as you would say, healthy internally and having it be a sustainable lifestyle as opposed to a crash diet and binge sort of cycle. Yeah, uh, good question. Well, I guess to a certain degree, I'm very lucky that uh, exercise is very therapeutic for me. So I don't have to find motivation anywhere to get up in the morning and go and exercise. It's my double A batteries in the morning. Uh, when, when it comes to the nutritional side of things, so that's a, that can be a double-edged sword. So as we know, if you know, with meal frequency and the amount of protein that we're having and insulin spiking, that we do signal our mTOR pathway, which is great for anabolism and building muscle, but it isn't always the best for anti-aging. And I want to ensure that I don't age any quicker than, than I need to. So I do have a combination. I do like to intermittent fast. So I'll fast until, you know, maybe you know, from eight o'clock in the evening until like 12 o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon the following day. And I'll do that maybe four or five times a week. It's usually instinctive. Uh, I'll, I'll take certain supplements such as a berberine or anything that can help with autophagy. I'll do the daily saunas and the ice baths. The ice baths are usually like three times a week, but I've got a sauna around the back here as well. And I, I perform some form of cardio every single day. And, uh, you know, again, that's just very therapeutic. I try to get outdoors as much as I can, get that vitamin D and the restorative red light in the morning and in the evening at sunset. And all of those things do take away a lot of stressful uh, factors. So, Usually you'll find people in populations when they're stressed, they'll eat bad foods. Uh, when their blood sugar uh, drops, they'll eat bad foods. So I'll do whatever I can to regulate that. And I'll follow, like at the moment, a cyclical keto approach to my diet as well. And, uh, you know, I, I do like to have my carbohydrates, but I usually have them in the evening because I want, um, you know, my grains, my fiber. I'll have some fruit to have my antioxidants as well. So I just find a combination of all these sort of things allow me to enjoy the process. When it comes to the pressure of getting in shape, um, I'm, not in, I'm not one of these people that's in shape all year round, okay, in, in my standards. I'll, I'll, I'll keep my abs. There's no doubt about it, but I don't let, let myself get soft or fluffy or anything like that because it makes me feel good. It's not so much of a social pressure. If I look good, I just feel good. And I've battled depression in the past, and I know that having more confidence about me based on my appearance does really help. The only time I really get in shape for, you know, like is for a photo shoot or for a video series or something like that. And that's when I'll put the pressure upon myself. It's not so much an external factor, but I know in doing so that I'm helping a lot of other people. I'm inspiring other people. So the social networks really does, you know, help in that, in that instance is not a hindrance. I'll, uh, you know, try to balance the both. So the kind of shape you're in, say, not in prep for a photo shoot or a video shoot or something like that versus the kind of shape you are in for that. What is the difference there? How can we visualize that? Is that like a percentage body fat that you've measured? How do we get a better idea of that? Yeah, it'd be a percentage body fat and weight. So I'm about 220 pounds now. I'd probably diet down to about 205 if I was to get ready for a photo shoot. My body fat had a guess. I don't really measure my body fat unless it's for a video series. 
but I'm assuming it'd be about 15 at the moment. And I'd probably get down to about, you know, six, uh, something like that for a photo shoot. You know, I'm not competing in bodybuilding shows or anything like that anymore. So I don't have to really jeopardize my health too much. Now you talk about how these photo shoots, you know, in the shape you're in, you're inspiring people, you're helping people. But you just mentioned, and this is something, this is not not to like trap you because I do think there are a lot of nuances uh, here in, in this question, in, in this answer. That kind of shape, especially for competition bodybuilding shape when folks are getting down to three, even under 3% body fat, by no metric is that easily sustainable or good for long-term health. At least no one has, no one I've met would agree with those statements. So how do you balance that do you think that that is inspiring people or is it promoting an unattainable standard well everybody's different in that regards like i said i don't get down to those body fat digits now anymore i gave up competing in natural bodybuilding back in 2009 um so no it definitely isn't sustainable but sometimes if you look at imagery like that uh, of you know whether it be myself on a bodybuilding stage or a, you know a Mr. Olympia champion, maybe it's not something that you aspire to look like, but there's something that you can get from it that inspires you to get up in the morning, to get to the gym. You know, I noticed when I was working at bodybuilding.com, we'd have like Dorian Yates, a six times Mr. Olympia, or Jay Cutler, another Mr. Olympia, providing video content on the platform, but the vast, vast majority had no 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 was it motivation to compete on stage however they would follow the video series because they wanted to learn something from them much like if we're going to pick up a golf club we're probably never going to play like uh tiger woods there's a huge disconnect but would we want to learn from him i'm sure there is something so we'll we'll generally use that as our motivation and our accountability especially if that person's got a personality which now with the you know the platforms of you know your podcast and uh, Instagram and YouTube, we can actually get to know the person who we're following now. And if we relate to that person, regardless of what they look like and what their single-digit body fat may come down to, we'll follow that. Uh, but you know, as we know, a lot of competitive bodybuilders will only diet down several times a year for that particular day for that particular body fat. Uh, level that is that is required and when i used to compete i'd compete once a year and i'd stay at that body fat uh level for a couple of weeks maybe for some photo shoots but that was it and that's where the balance comes in you know you have to find what is manageable for you and me being about 15 14 body fat is manageable for me however if it's required from me I'll get down for a very short time period and then bring it back where it's comfortable. Some people are comfortable at five or six body fat, five or six percent body fat. Maybe it's because they're an ectomorph, they have a faster metabolism, and they can sustain it. How does your knowledge base and approach toward training and nutrition now compare to your knowledge base and approach toward training and nutrition toward the end of your bodybuilding career? You mentioned the last time you competed was in 2009. Yeah, it's completely changed. It's a three sixty. That that might be no, too big of a then, that might be too big of a question. If we need to slice that down to smaller chunks, we can we can. <laughs> no, that, that's absolutely fine. Um, so the typical mindset that I had was that of a lot of bodybuilders, we would just think about the macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat, the ratio, 
and that is it, to build muscle or to be in a deficit, then to lose body fat. And that's pretty much where it stopped. Now, today, I'm a lot more versatile in my approach. It's not just that one standard protocol. Uh, you know, I do compete in other events, even though I, I'm, you know, a heavier and look like a bodybuilder. I like to do ultra marathons and Ironman triathlon and Spartan and stuff like that. Uh, so I've become a lot more versatile physically, but also uh, when it comes to the nutritional concepts as well. As I mentioned before, I follow more now a cyclical approach to keto. Not all the time. I'll change it up. Uh, I'm thinking now, probably at my age, about my micronutrients, my fiber. I know a lot of the people around the world don't have as much fiber as they should do. And uh, everything that I'm doing now, my decisions are based about increasing my health span as well as kicking butt whilst I'm on this earth as well. So <laughs> it, it changed a lot. You know, I, I try to eat the rainbow on my plate, a lot of you know vegetables and plant matter. Uh, for about two months every year, I'll go either vegetarian or vegan, and you know just I, I like I like a state of hormesis. So I like to change things up quite a bit. So uh, I'm a little bit more ex or much more experimental now than I was, but experimental in a way that it's going to improve my, my health. I'm curious, you're someone who, who does enjoy the longer distance competitions, the the triathlons, the obstacle course racing these days, doing that at a, a fairly, um, I don't want to say heavy body weight because there are certainly bigger athletes out there, but with a lot of muscle mass on your frame. What are some strategies you've learned to maintain muscle mass and strength when training for more endurance-based activities? That's a question that we actually get a lot at bar bend and people expect there to be like this, like easy one sentence answer for how to maintain muscle mass and strength when you are say training for a triathlon, assuming there is no yeah. one, one quick tip that works for everyone. What are some strategies that you found effective for yourself? Uh, the one thing, cause I'm a very high volume trainer. I like to train with a lot of reps, a lot of sets with, a, with very high intensity, uh, I actually thought that was going to help me with my endurance fields, um, but it didn't. It, it hindered it. It quickly led to overtraining. So what I found was by drastically lowering the volume of my training and the frequency, so I, I generally train like five to six times a week. I brought it down to four times a week. That's resistance training now. And then the strategies I included to improve my endurance at the same time was a lot of short interval work, even though if I'm competing in a, an ultramarathon or a triathlon or an Ironman, there's a lot of distance there. However, I would use my non-training days on the weekends to go long. So if I was going for a 100-mile bike ride, it was on my non-training day. Uh, but I would eat and supplement like a bodybuilder, not like an endurance athlete or triathlete. So, uh, for instance, if I'm going out on a bike ride with a lot of other guys that are – professional or top Ironman athletes who are just eating a couple of gels and maybe a couple of bars. I actually have a backpack with me, a small <laughs> backpack, small backpack where I actually have food in there. I'll have protein shakes with me. I'll have my glutamine and my essential amino acids in my, in my shakes and stuff like that, just to prevent that catabolism. What I did find as well, that meditation and uh, breath work really helped because obviously I'm, my cortisol levels are getting spiked from every direction. And I started measuring my heart rate variability. 
So that would quickly tell me if my training was going overboard, if I was overtraining. Uh, so, you know, tracking my HRV uh, definitely helped in that regards as well. So, you know, definitely lowering the, sh- the, the training days, the volume, the intensity, uh, but utilizing a lot of HIIT work, HIIT training to improve my cardio during the week and then going long and slow on the weekends. You've been in the fitness space for a long time. You've experimented with a lot of different types of fitness competition from bodybuilding to endurance athletics. What are some maybe non-conventional training methodologies that you've experimented with since you retired from competitive bodybuilding and which stuck out to you as, as ones that you're like, oh, okay, you know what? I'm getting something out of this. This one's surprising me in a good way. Well, I'd say, yeah, I haven't experimented too much like that, except as of recent. And that is, uh, I, I've actually, I, I've, as of about a month ago, I purchased a bike that has artificial intelligence built into it. And it's called a Cowl, Cowl AI. And I was very skeptical when I uh, first heard about it. However, a friend of mine who is very, very highly regarded in the biohacking community uh, strongly suggested it. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go for it. It only requires two 10-second sprints within a seven-minute period. You know, first of all, you're warming up, then you're going absolutely all out, and you sprint before it calibrates itself to you. And then you have a time in between that sprint where you're trying to go now from your sympathetic nervous system to your parasympathetic nervous system. And it guides you. The bike guides you to get you back into this parasympathetic nervous system uh, before going for your second sprint. And uh, the concept is that it, it completely completes your, uh, sorry, depletes your legs of glycogen during these sprints to help you become a little bit more fat adaptive for the rest of the day. Well, I actually measure my blood glucose with a 24-hour blood glucose monitor. Just, you know, I'm not a diabetic, just I like to quantify things. And I was very, very surprised that it did deplete my glycogen substantially more than I was to do my traditional HIIT training. Plus, my cortisol levels weren't spiking as much. So I'd say that's probably been the most surprising concept uh, that that I've adapted recently. So are you seeing an improvement in your fat metabolism from that? Yes, I probably would if I was on a stricter diet because my family were here um, visiting. I'm I'm from Wales originally, and I'm here in in Boise, Idaho, and uh, I really didn't stick to a diet. I didn't train during that time. However, I stuck to the the cowl bike because it was very easy. I didn't have to go to the gym. I had it in my garage here. Usually, I would definitely put on several pounds of body weight during that time, and I didn't. Uh, So now the qualification that I want to reach to next is to follow it on my particular diet that I'm following right now, which is a lot cleaner, to see uh, what fat loss is, uh, is, is created from it. I want to, that's, that's interesting. And that's exactly the kind of thing I was, I, I knew there was something you don't, you don't retire from bodybuilding and stay active in fitness for a decade and not try out some things that you're skeptical about at first. So yeah, yeah. And I was very skeptical on this one, so, uh, but it's, it's, it seems to be going in the right direction. So I do want to change direction a little bit and talk about uh, your career in podcasting. I mean, 
Everyone who's listening to this podcast listens to fitness podcasts, so I'd be uh, remiss not to mention the Knowledge and Mileage podcast, which you host, and you've had a range of guests. You've been producing that podcast for quite some time now. Who is your most memorable guest on the Knowledge and Mileage podcast thus far? Uh, I'd say it was Dorian Yates. I've had a you know, vast array of people from the health, fitness, and biohacking and various types of community members on there. But six times Mr. Olympia, Dorian Yates is that person. I've known Dorian for, 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 for some years. But uh, you know, he's definitely changed a lot since his bodybuilding days. But one thing that I've always been aspired to about Dorian is not the look of him in particular at all. It's just his mindset. Very, uh, very dedicated, persistent, and disciplined to whatever he puts his hand at. I'm sure whatever he put his hand at, he'd be a success at because, uh, you know, he would definitely control his environment and not get controlled by it. And as we know, we all get controlled by our environment to a certain degree, but uh, nothing swayed him whatsoever. So that, that conversation was fascinating. Changing direction once more. We talked about a lot. We've talked about a lot of concepts on this recording. We've talked about we've talked about everything from the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting to HRV and depleting glycogen levels and increasing fat metabolism. What is a concept or concepts in fitness that you think we overcomplicate and put too much emphasis on overthinking them? Um, wow, there's so many different things, you know, obviously like we've got the keto craze now that isn't for everybody. We've got the carnival, we've got different training protocols and I've noticed a lot of beginners, you know, they, they get confused. There's a lot of conflicting information. And with this, I just find more people discussing concepts as opposed to applying, you know, there's so many ways of climbing Everest you don't have to follow one in particular, and you don't have to overcomplicate it. It just comes down with staying to, you know, whether you follow one of my programs or someone else's, they will work. It's just the one that you feel that you can relate to, that you'll be consistent with, that you'll be um, motivated to stick to. I, I just think a lot of people overcomplicate things. They'll try to focus on their nutrition more than their training. However, you've got to create the stimuli in the gym in order for the nutrition to really work. So it's a combination of you know not focusing on one leg of that stool. You've got to have all three legs of the stool of the persistence, the sleep, the recovery, the nutrition in order to, to progress. And what are some concepts on the other end that you think uh, we maybe oversimplify and should spend a little bit more time thinking about or at least approach with a little bit more intent? Yeah, like the sort, as I, as I mentioned, the sources of the food. You know, um, I, I think a lot of people will just look like, look at macros. They're, they just look at macros, for instance, and if it fits their macros, it's great. You know, that, 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 that's a little bit complicated. If they simplified it and went to the supermarket or the farmer's market and just got the simple food that our ancestors were brought up upon, then it'd be a lot easier for them. People go out and purchase a line of supplements before, before they've even kind of you know, got to the gym or, or been training for several months to see what they're actually made of, if they can actually recover okay with nutrition before looking at creatine or glutamine or anything like that so you know i I think if people just focused on nutrition a little bit more than say supplementation that they'd be going in the right direction 
Chris, what's the best way for folks to follow the work you're doing and to learn about the content that you're pushing out? Sure. Um, a lot of the content that I pushed out, they can find on healthkick.com. That's spelled H-E-A-L-T-H-K-I-K.com. Or you can uh, find me on Instagram, and that's Chris Gethin. That's K-R-I-F-G-E-T-H-I-N. Awesome. Chris Gethin, thank you so much for joining us today and look forward to see what you're up to next. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate that. 